Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have been dreaming up for the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and as for my co-host, the one, the only, Dan Z, as he'll tell you, we're recording this show on the night of Thursday, February 28, 2019, where, to be honest, very little has happened in Star Wars-related news today. Virtually nothing. Well, there is a little thing called Batu that you might want to take a look at. I guess we could talk about, there's this press embargo for last week's Star Wars Galaxy's Edge media preview, which lifted earlier today, and now there's this ocean, you had mentioned, an ocean of information. That would be uh, absolutely, fantastically, 100% correct. I think it's safe to say that the adrenaline has not yet worn off. I mean, are you kidding me? This is crazy. I want to say the embargo broke at midnight West Coast time, or was it easy? I was allowed to um, release the interview I released uh, at 11 o'clock Central Time. Okay, so East Coast time. And Disney decided a while back to sort of get people talking about Galaxy's Edge out ahead of the projected June opening, and by the way, we're going to get to that in a minute. Good. So they, they'd hold this precedent. The idea was that they'd reach out to major print outlets. ABC, Entertainment uh, Weekly, all kinds yes. of Yes. Oh, yeah, God. Entertainment Weekly is... <laughs> Anthony has put together... This is the equivalent of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've never seen this many articles. <laughs> it's true. About, it's totally you know, it's, true. I mean, no, it's wonderful, but it's, yeah. it's, it's just by himself. He, he created a tsunami of coverage. Disney and Lucasfilm initially bring uh, this group of reporters up to the Bay Area. They take them to Lucasfilm, and they give them a firm grounding in Star Wars history and mythology. Next day, the group is now down in Glendale at 1401 Flower Street, to be exact, uh, the home of Walt Disney Imagineering. And they walk them through the whole process. They show them the models. And then, God help them, day three, they get to go to a portion of the Star Wars Galaxy's Edge worksite. And thanks largely to all of the rain that Southern California has experienced this winter, which has put the Anaheim version of Galaxy's Edge behind schedule. The head of construction, Walt Smith, has been quoted as saying that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, at least the Anaheim version of this 14-acre area, really close to really complete. <laughs> as an English teacher, how would you diagram that sentence, Dan? <laughs> A lot of red ink. There we go. On the other hand, were you to talk to the members of Smith's construction team, they would tell you that work on Galaxy's Edge is running two to three weeks behind schedule. So here are these guys at the construction site, which occasionally is a mud pit. And here's Disney CEO Bob Iger, who back on January 8th of this year, he did an interview with Barron's Magazine. And as part of that interview, Iger says, when Star Wars opens in Anaheim in June and in Florida later in the year, that's adding capacity. As far as the construction teams are concerned, Dan, Bob said about adding capacity, he's added some real pressure to their project. If you ask them, say, yeah, we can have the Anaheim version of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge open by June, if you consider June 30th to actually be open in June, 
there's some fascinating things that are sort of bumped out that, that give you some idea of how far behind schedule they are. Have you heard about how when this place opens, in spite of what you see in all the concept art, Dan, there will be no droids wandering through the landscape? Oh, um, no, I did not know that. Is that because of the weather, or what is that? There's two reasons. They anticipate that the first summer, this part of the park will be so crowded when it opens that the droids are actually going to be sort of a hazard to navigation. Oh, sure. But to be honest, they also need time to be programmed. They need time in the actual space. There are all of these issues that you have to suddenly consider. Like, I'm sure you you read about how they went and found uh, Kenny Baker's R2-D2 so they could take a mold of the footprint of that version of the droid and then they made a sort of a wheeled object out of it and roll it through the land. So it looks like R2-D2 has been all over this place in the concrete. Oh, wow. Which is a wonderful idea, except that if you have a droid that gets caught in that track or falls down because of that track. So you have to sort of let the droids in the space to sort of map it out and realize, okay, don't go over in that part because the tracks are too deep and they will you will get stuck there. But they're hoping that once the crowds die down, they can bring these droids in at night and run them around the land so they get used to the layout and that sort of thing. That'll be there, but it won't be there for opening day. But anyway, getting back to embargo breaks at uh, 11 o'clock central time. And you're teaching this week, aren't you? Oh, of course. Yeah. How are you cramming this in? This is something I've been gearing up for for a long time. I, I haven't even set foot in Batu yet, of course. Mm-hmm. But but just knowing, getting all this information, I was I got to talk with Clayton Sandell when the embargo broke, and he gave mm-hmm. me... A really full rundown of everything, which you can hear on Coffee with Kenobi this week for part one, and part two will be next week, mm-hmm. uh, where he talks about going through their construction site walkthrough and, and wearing the the hard hats and going through the Falcon, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And mm-hmm. once it broke, I just jumped on Twitter and I, I posted the show, and then I started reposting and retweeting articles from Nerdist and mm-hmm. Gizmodo and, of course, Clayton's awesome work on ABC News and Entertainment Weekly with Anthony Bresnikan and just so many others, images of the food, all kinds of stuff, the merchandise. I had a huge smile on my face. I normally go to bed mm, about 10.30 or so. I didn't go to bed till midnight last night because I just was following it all, just drinking it in <laughs> like it's blue milk that's not... Um, <laughs> actually dairy yeah the blue milk it's actually a rice milk did you catch the two different flavors by the way that the the green milk is going to be more of a citrus beverage whereas the blue milk is more of a berry melon that yeah i saw that i i I know they didn't have milk for them to taste Mm -hmm. for them to sample they did get to taste a lot of the food and drink some of the other drinks that are going to be in Mm -hmm. the cantina but no, I, I I missed that flavored aspect of it. From talking with the folks and reading through this, what's your take so far on, on the layout of the land? Of course, they've got it all together with with the Easter eggs and the spacing. And it sounds like they've got it designed so that when you actually do get to see the Falcon, you are going to get that reveal. Mm-hmm. Like when you're walking underneath the, the tunnel of the of the railroad and you come around the corner of the, of the square and there's the there's Cinderella castle there you're going to have that falcon moment 
the way they have it set up, when you walk around and you get to see the Falcon, it is displayed for you exactly like it is for Luke Skywalker when we as an audience first see it in A New Hope when he's in Docking Bay 94. So that's the POW moment that you're going to get. And that's basically what we talked about, where the the attractions are. But we didn't get to... He and I didn't talk a lot about the lay of the land as far as where the forest is and things like that. So I'm sure you've got okay. stuff on that. To double back to the Millennium Falcon for a moment, you eventually end in... Now, what's the correct name here? I keep hearing things like guest quarters or... Th- that space in the Millennium Falcon where the holographic chess set is. and Oh, it's the like the crew galley? Crew galley. Okay. Yeah. Supposedly, Chewie, because he needs credits or to the effect to repair, has cut a deal with Hondo that he will run a few shipments for him. And, of course, he needs a crew. My problem with this version of the storyline is... Why am I getting at a ship that we just need a couple of parts? All right, but if you can go run this mission... Classic Falcon, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But the original conceit of this galley area was that when you came in, when you entered, Chewie was going to be in there. You were going to be able to get this wonderful selfie with Chewie, and, but then to get you away from Chewie, the guy was going to come in and say, oh, by the way, we need you, you know, we got to get going. You know, get, make your way to the, the cockpit. So it was this sort of surprise one-two punch, and you'd be able to get selfies in there. But I guess when they were playtesting it, having Chewie in this space, they actually let people go into the space, and they went nuts all by themselves. They wanted to have pictures of themselves taken to the holographic chess table with the, the iconic stuff of the ship in the background. But they had just as good a time without Chewie in there And the ops people could get them from that space down to the cockpit in time that it then meant they could meet. uh, With Disney, it's always about the hourly theoretical capacity of attraction, how many people you can get through. That all keys off of the fact that, you know, you you only spend 30 or 45 seconds in this particular space before you're pulsed to the next thing. And in this case, this was, they were planning on giving folks about three minutes in this area so they could pose for their photos, they could get it out of their system, and then they go to the cockpit. So what they've decided to do, which in a weird sort of way is much more satisfying to me as a Star Wars fan, is evidently they're going to have Chewie throughout the day making periodic appearances out by the the Falcon that's out in front of the show building for for Hondo? Well, not only that, but the the queue itself is basically because this Falcon, Lucasfilm and and Disney have, have officially said that this is their ultimate design of the Millennium Falcon. This is mm-hmm. the go-to. This is the model for books, for toys, for future movies, all that stuff. This The way that they've designed this Falcon is that so they really want you to get your money's worth. So the queue is going to be able to set itself up so that you can go through and underneath and around every angle of the Falcon. Enjoy every little nuance and detail of it in addition to seeing Chewbacca here outside of the ship. And, you know, it's going to help you. You're going to need some distractions because the lines are going to be crazy long. But the inside of the Falcon that you talked about, it sounds to me, at least this is what Clayton told us on Coffee with Kenobi, that six people can be in that area at at a time. You you sit at the Dejaric table. You can lay in the the little bed. You can go sit at the engineer's table where Han Solo sits in A New Hope when Luke is training with his lightsaber for the very first time, get all the pictures you need and all that good stuff. And then 
when you get that call, you're going to walk down that hallway and you actually get into the cockpit itself. So just having six people in there at a time should give you plenty of time. And they want you to like push buttons and touch things and just kind of really be, you know, ingest all five senses into this thing. Supposedly for the Disneyland version, this is going to key off of a version of the Disney Play app. In fact, you're going to be encouraged when you're in the land to sign into the Disney Play app because it will allow you to do things, for example, to translate graffiti on the walls. Oh, the Orabesh. You listen in on conversations between smugglers and you fly the Millennium Falcon and then you go to Oga's Cantina. And the bartender, because you have your phone with you, will go, oh, you're part of the crew that crashed the, the, the Falcon. You know, Hondo's not really happy with you. But you can then return to Galaxy's Edge, whether it's over the same vacation or you can come back over the summer and your reputation points accumulate. Does it carry over to the other coast too? I'm trying to find out because as I understand it, for Florida, because they already have the magic bands in place, sure, they're going to use that system instead. I mean, I, there are some interesting differences between uh, California and Florida. In fact, did you hear about how the color palette for Florida is actually different than for California, uh, largely because of how the light in Florida no. is different? Yeah. Just like for the buildings or, or for what? All over, all over. I remember once talking with John Hench, and he was talking about they learned the hard way when they were doing the Magic Kingdom. They had picked all of their colors when they were in Southern California, and they'd bring them to Florida, and it's like John would get down there. It's like, what the hell did you guys do? That's not the same color. And it's like, yes, it is, Mr. Hench. Look, and, you know, they'd go inside the building, and they'd look, and sure enough, it matched the color sample, but the light the light is different in Florida. I don't know if it's the humidity or, or whatever the deal is, but they actually have to adjust the colors to make them, I, I want to say, less sharp because of humidity. Wow. There's that. There's also the whole issue of only two entrances. Chris Beatty, I guess, is particularly proud of the third entrance for the Disneyland version, you know, because the cinematic element that... You come across this tunnel off of Big Thunder Trail. From the outside, it fits the Old West. But as you get inside of it, you realize this has been laser carved out of stone. And you see sort of these hints of buildings with this sort of slightly curved tunnel. And when you step out into this world, there are full-size spaceships and there are droids and giant buildings. But you have that same sort of cinematic reveal that you talked about with the Falcon, which... You come around a corner and there is the Falcon in all of its glory. And yeah, I forget which of the Imagineers said, and we designated a 10 foot square foot space for weeping adult males. And that happened. Yeah. <laughs> did it really? It did. Oh. It did. I, I Look, if I don't, I will think I'm dead inside. I've been waiting oh. for this moment all my life. I hope oh. I'm sure it's going to happen. Just like when I watch White Christmas at the end each year. Now <laughs> uh, you're man after my own heart. I have to admit, from a, an operations and a storytelling point of view, I'm just fascinated by the choices with, for example, Rise of the Resistance, how they're opting to tell that story. You come across the Resistance that's hidden, that's in, you know, they're embedded at, at, at Batu, but they're, they're off hiding in the forest, and they're trying to determine why the First Order showed up a few weeks ago, what they're looking for here. 
they then in the, the process sort of recruit you to go across away to the ruins. There's a wonderful scene with Ray. And then you find out that Poe in his X-Wing is going to lead you on this mission. And so you eventually you make your way through the queue and you find yourself you're on an active landing strip. There's all this noise of other ships nearby taking off and you're sort of hurried into this U-Wing. And supposedly there's going to be 48 people at a time hustled into this U-Wing. And then you are with Poe and then suddenly here's a fleet of Star Destroyers and he gets away. He's like, I'm going to go get health. But you get pulled by a tractor beam into the hangar bay on a Star Destroyer. And then the door of the U-Wing opens up and you are standing inside of a building as big as the entire show building or a room as big as the entire show building for Pirates of the Caribbean. And they didn't get to see the finished effects. They got to see the space and everyone got their mind blown. But there's a hundred foot long digital projection screen where it's going to be what we've seen from every Star Wars movie, that sort of force field effect and looking out to open space and you're going to see other ships of the fleet and realize you are really in trouble. And then they take the group of 48 of you and break it down into two groups of 24 and you, you get placed in a detention cell just like the one that Poe was put in by Kylo Ren. Every time the story moves forward, you're moved into a smaller group. And the next part of the show, you're loaded into a transport, and there's only 12 of you. This is when you're now making your way through the Star Destroyer as it's under attack because Poe has, in fact, done what is promised. He's returned with a rebel fleet. And now you're inside the vessel that's being fired upon. And you have to get out. And I don't know if you've seen the safety warning yet that's out online, Dan? Is this related? Is this because there's a drop or something? Sudden drop. That's the magic phrase. Sudden drop. (laughs) I don't like drops. (laughs) This supposedly is an escape pod, and, and your escape is facilitated by Finn. Oh, cool. Yeah, so I guess the other thing we need to talk about here, what do you think about... This Save Salvage. This is where you get to make the lightsabers, right? Yes. Yeah, I think, uh, so the way Clayton explained it to me is, you know how right now at the parks in Disney Springs, you can build those plastic lightsabers that are really cool? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, they're not like that. They're metal and they're heavy. And he's held them and he said they are incredible. And they even have a, a kyber crystal inside of them as well. Um, in addition to that, you can also, of course, get those droids that can actually interact with things inside the parks. And what this tells me is that my show is going to need more sponsors because this sounds pretty great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I have to admit, when they talk about things like the Savvy Salvage experience, where, you know, the whole conceit that it's kind of like a, a speakeasy, you know, the, the notion of you have to know the secret password to get into the space where you're making your own lightsaber. And But did you catch the part where they said it was probably going to take you about 20 minutes? No, no, I didn't. I saw, I saw the images and I heard Clayton talk about the, the weight of them. But no, I, I but that kind of makes sense, though, I guess, if, if it's as elaborate as it looks like online. It's like Ollivander's, basically, right? If you look at the blue milk, if you look at this lightsaber experience, 
there are some parallels between Star Wars Galaxy's Edge and the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. You know, ideas that have, you know, mutated. And I wonder if there would even have been a Batu if it hadn't been for a certain boy who lived. Tell you what, Dan, once we get back from the commercial break, let's talk about that. And we're back. Okay, so when Len and I were talking with Carly earlier today, last question of the interview, I asked her, how does it compare to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter? And Carly, as she rightfully should have said, it's like, I won't know till it's not a construction set. I'm going to have to go back. I mean, I went into one when it was done. You know, this one, I'm walking around with a construction helmet and a vest and all that. And it's not fair to make a comparison yet. But again, if if you know your theme park history, we almost got a Harry Potter land. In fact, it was supposed to be built at the Magic Kingdom. The source for this story, believe it or not, Dan, is the then president of the Universal Orlando Resort. His name was Bob Galt. And Bob used to hold Lunch with Bob. Uh, these were question and answer sessions where middle and upper management types at the Universal Orlando Resort could sit around and pepper Mr. Galt with questions about upcoming projects and that sort of thing. And it's July of 2003. One of the executives at this thing throws out a question and says, has Universal pursued the theme park rights for Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter? And Galt's response was, Disney already has Harry Potter wrapped up. But tell you what, we will look into Lord of the Rings. Supposedly, at this point in history, Disney had a letter of intent with J.K. Rowling. They hadn't formally signed the contract for the theme park rights, but they had an understanding that they'd work together and they'd, you know, they'd come up with something. And Disney decided, well, it's Harry Potter, it's about magic. Okay, the logical place for this thing to go is the Magic Kingdom. And what they were planning on doing at this time, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea Lagoon was just sitting there empty. They'd shut down the attraction, I want to say, in 1998. And so what they decided to do, they'd, they'd build a Harry Potter mini land. I want to say one of the attractions in here was a Care of Magical Creatures petting zoo, where literally you could go into a room and there'd be an animatronic version of a hippogriff and, you know, you'd bow to it and it would bow to you. And and the other one was basically a defense against the dark arts dark ride. Oh, wow. If you know the Disney parks, they have that Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger spin attraction with the gun. You roam through an environment and you shoot at things and you get points and that sort of thing. This was going to be that only you were going to have a wand. And as you traveled through, you'd cast spells and defeat death eaters or whatever and at the end depending on you know how many points you've gotten and which house you had designated that you belonged to as you were on the attraction i guess at the end of the day they were you know they then announced that this house is one and you know that hooray for hippogriff you know or uh, you know hufflepuff excuse me and then they were going to create sort of a, a quick service restaurant that was going to be the three broomsticks. The problem was it was small. It was unambitious. It was it it was a fun little land for the Magic Kingdom. 
this is the Walt Disney Company, and they had already dealt with P.L. Travers, a difficult author who was very protective of her characters. And so you would think they'd have remembered that lesson, but no, the Imagineers basically were like, sit down, honey, let us explain to you how we're going to do this. And when she would start to offer suggestions, like, well, no, that's not going to work in a theme park setting. And it's impractical to create a Hogwarts Express and yada, yada, yada. And she was, frankly, insulted by the way Disney treated her. And she went back and told her attorney to withdraw the letter of, of intent. And Universal found out about this. They were smart enough to approach her in such a way to the effect of, you know, we, we respect your books, we respect, respect the films. In fact, we want to put people in the Harry Potter movies. So tell you what, put us in touch with the folks at Warner Brothers like Stuart Craig, who designed the movies, and we'll work with him to create the land. And Disney just got cut flat-footed because in the spring of 2007, they weren't even aware this was happening, that, that Universal was talking with Rowling. They were planning on using KUKA arm technology to create an Incredibles trainer simulator. And Universal swooped in and got a 10-year exclusive license on the KUKA arm technology, and which meant that Disney, other than the couple of them they'd purchased for things like the anglerfish, uh, already in advance uh, for the, the Seas with Nemo and Fender Detection, sure. they couldn't, couldn't use the technology in the parks. And... May of 2007, Wizarding World of Harry Potter gets announced. May of 2008, as they're wrapping production of Half-Blood Prince, they actually keep members of the cast back, selective members, for about a week, 10 days to shoot the footage for uh, Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey. But meanwhile, here's Disney sort of doing the sour grapes thing. Harry Potter got away, and Harry Potter's a very popular bunch of films over at Warner Brothers, but... This is Universal. They can't do anything right. I mean, summer of 2009, Universal Studios Florida had their that their roller coaster, the you know, Rip Ride uh, Rocket, front of the park. The opening got delayed by five months because of all these technical issues. And out in Hollywood, Universal Studios Hollywood had, if you Dan, if you can believe this, they did a musical version of the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> that was so terrible, it closed within months. Swamp jazz hands. Jazz hands underwater, no mm, less. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's February of 2010, the four-month-long shoot of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2 begins. And they wrap production on June 12th. And so here's Daniel, here's Rupert, here's Emma on the set of Hogwarts Castle. And they're teary because it's like they've just shot the last scene for the last movie and they're never going to come back to Hogwarts. You know, they're saying goodbye to this whole world. And six days later, they're in Orlando, standing in the middle of Hogsmeade Village, looking up at Hogwarts Castle. And it's like, oh, why well, we haven't seen this place for the last time. And that opens. It's an enormous success which is not going to go unnoticed by Disney. And they're like, okay, how do we get our own Hogwarts? And it's May 20th, 2011. It's the opening day for Star Wars. The adventure continues at Disney's Hollywood Studios. Have you ever seen the any of the footage of the opening for that? I have. With George, with his lightsaber next to Mickey Mouse and his Jedi robe. Oh, yeah. Well, have you seen the lead up to it? It literally started off with this amazing ceremony with Darth Vader and dozens upon dozens of stormtroopers. And they've taken control 
of the park and then there's like my lord there's a disturbance and on the jumbotron that's over the stage you see back toward the actual star wars attraction these two hooded figures with lightsabers who are just charging through the park doing <laughs> sort of the qui-gon obi-wan thing of just taking out everybody it's amazing choreographed action scene and Finally, these two robed figures, they make it to the stage and they whip off their hoods. And of course, it's Bob Iger and George Lucas. Oh, how have I missed this? That sounds amazing. you got to chase it down. It's wonderful footage. Um, but anyway, so before this ha happens, Bob Iger and George Lucas get together for breakfast at the, the Hollywood Brown Derby. And in fact, one of the reasons they got together that morning is George is like, all right, we're going to do this this thing on stage. I got to show you handle how to handle a lightsaber. So literally in the Brown Derby, just before breakfast, you know, George Lucas is giving Bob Iger tips on this is how you handle a lightsaber. So, you know, really great story. So, so they, they sit down for breakfast and, and they're chatting just over breakfast casually. Iger kind of floats the idea that have you ever considered selling your company? Lucas admits, look, you know, I just celebrated my 67th birthday, and I have begun thinking about retiring, but I haven't really thought about selling the company. His quote it evidently was, I'm not ready to pursue that now, but when I am, I'd love to talk. And Iger was like, oh, crap, so Star Wars isn't available. All right, let's go talk to Cameron. So just five months later, September 21st, 2011, Disney acquires the theme park rights to Avatar. And in the middle of the press release, it says Disney's Animal Kingdom at Walt Disney World Resort is planned as the site of the first Avatar-themed mm. land. They say at that point, construction was supposed to begin in 2013. But again, the first. Meanwhile, December 2011, Universal announces, hey, second Wizarding World, we're building in Hollywood. Follows it up six months later with, hey, third Wizarding World, we're going to open that in uh, Universal Studios Japan. Within a month... Lucas calls Iger and goes, you know what? Now I'm ready to sell. So jump ahead. May 27, 2017. Pandora, the world of Avatar, opens. Have you noticed the complete lack of announcements about new Pandoras? Yeah. it's It's been a bit vacuous. Well, interestingly enough, November 2017, Oriental Land Company, uh, they're the folks who own Tokyo Disney Seas. They begin talking about, you know, we're looking to expand. We don't quite know what, how we want to expand, but we're looking to expand. And what Disney pitches them on, now remember, they have two theme parks over there already. They have Tokyo Disneyland, which is filled with a lot of clones for stateside stuff. And then they have a, a park that's filled with basically all original IP, a, a couple of things like Toy Story, uh, Midway Mania that have made it in since. But that's Tokyo Disney Seas. What the Imagineers came back with is like, hey, you've already done C. How would you feel about Tokyo Disney Sky? The idea is that they were going to use three things to basically anchor this park, which was going to be all about flying. And so one land was going to be Pandora, a world of Avatar. Other land was going to be Galaxy, uh, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And somewhere also in the mix was going to be a clone of Soaring Around the World from Epcot and Disney's California Adventure. So it, it, Disney's just sort of sitting there waiting for the Oriental land folks to make a decision, whereas uh, the folks from Paris 
February of 2018, they announced a $2.5 billion expansion of of their resort, and Star Wars Land is right there. It's it's a huge chunk of what they're going to do at Walt Disney Studios Paris. Tokyo, for some reason, same month, rejects the idea of Tokyo Disney Sky, opting to go with what they feel is a safer bet. So in June of last year, they announced that in 2022, they're adding a third port to Tokyo Disney Seas, and it's going to be built around Frozen, Tangled, and Peter Pan. They're going to add a deluxe hotel right in the land that's going to sort of a fantasy-themed hotel, and which kind of really agitated Disney because they were hoping to actually split the development costs of the Star Wars Hotel with Japan. But they were like, nah, we... You know, the Star Wars thing, we're not sure. Do they want to do a Star Wars hotel at Disneyland, too, or is that even possible with the limited space? Just last week, Len sort of clued me in to... There's a outfit out of Eastern Europe that has just copywritten the term Disneyland Hotel. It's a, a basically a petrochemical company, again, Eastern Europe, but they also do some real estate investment. And evidently, Disney seems to remember. Disney had that Four Diamond Hotel fallout, uh, the thing that was actually going to be built in the middle of downtown Disney. That project fell apart because they changed the location. It was originally going to be in the parking lot area next to the Rainforest Cafe and the SBN zone. And Disney decided that they were going to move it in the middle of downtown Disney, and it was basically going to be built on top of the AMC, the old AMC theater, and the uh, ESPN Zone and Rainforest Cafe. The city of Anaheim, which had given Disney a $231 million tax break, got really ticked off about this because the idea was if they built the hotel in the other, the other area, nobody would lose their jobs, that they were shutting down this theater and this, these two restaurants, and 300 people are going to be thrown out of work. So Disney could build a four-diamond luxury hotel, you know, that they'd charge $400 a night for rooms. And this really angered the city council. So they took away the tax incentive. So that's the thing. Disney, who doesn't like spending money, you know, its own money on things, uh, shut down the project uh, just last fall. And the interesting thing is with with this Eastern European company copywriting the Disneyland hotel thing it would appear that project's back on the books but not as a Star Wars themed hotel just sort of a a generic hotel and you're right Dan if there were in fact land for this I think they'd go after this in a heartbeat but they had to do so much to find that 14 acres of land backstage I mean they had to shut down Big Thunder Ranch they had to move the Circle D Ranch where all the Disneyland horses were kept. I mean, hell, that place had been there since 1955. And that's now off-site in Norco, California. So there isn't any obvious room, though when Disney wants to do something, they do find room. They make I mean, it happen, yeah. Just in the past week or so, there's a giant rehearsal building just backstage at Disneyland, sort of, in fact, at the, the outermost borders of Galaxy's Edge. 
but uh, sort of where Galaxy's Edge meets Mickey's Toontown. And they've just informed all the people who work in that building that, all right, you know, we're going to be relocating a lot of this offsite. And it's like, well, why are you doing that? And it's oddly enough, it's not for expansion of Star or Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It's so they can bring a clone of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway from Disney's Hollywood Studios to Disneyland. That's interesting. That's kind of odd. Yeah. Well, I guess they want more places, more things for people to do so Galaxy's Edge won't be so congested. That's it exactly. So much of what Disney is doing now, whether it's the blue milk, let's face it, we have blue milk and green milk because butter beer sells so well. Yep. We have a place where you can go and build your own lightsaber because Ollivander's, you know, makes money hand over fist. And... I don't necessarily have a problem with that. No, I don't either. I mean, that's that's that was sort of the it sort of predicated everything, and thank goodness that it all worked out the way that it did because now we're going to get to go to Batu. And I love that we get Loth cats. Well, that's the other thing. I love that when they were talking about the how you know this place is going to be infested with porgs, and you're going to have sleeping Loth cats that occasionally wake up and give you stink eye before they go back to bed. It sounds like this is going to be such an amazing thing when it's done. And we haven't even talked about the hangar bay at the Rise of the Resistance. Uh, <sighs> the people who went in that said that this thing is so geographically massive. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I mean, there's there are effects, but the actual building in the hangar, and it, it looks like you're in a Star Destroyer hangar bay, like in The Force Awakens at the beginning when Poe and Finn steal that TIE fighter and escape. And that is another apparently threatens to make Roman cry situation as well. And I am so on board and I'm even going to brave drops. I don't like drops at all, but I'm going to do it for Star Wars. Think about this from a maintenance point of view. Every time we've seen that space, you know, whether it's on the Death Star or on a Star Destroyer, you have those polished black floors yes and those great expanses and think about what disney is committed to convince you that you are in the scene from the movie the 50 animatronic stormtroopers they're going to have limited movement but it's kind of limited movement like the hall of presidents that you'll see people shifting their weight you know they'll you know see a stormtrooper turn and maybe whisper to somebody else in the ranks all of these little movements that will convince you there's a garrison of stormtroopers over there, and I'm on side, on side of a Star Destroyer. And then there's going to be an actual live human being who addresses you as rebel scum, and I have to take you to detention. Follow me. You were in that scene we've seen in so many Star Wars movies. Immersion has just taken on a whole other meaning. Yeah. Um, it just Up until this point, it's always been, have you seen Diagon Alley? Have you seen Hogmeade's Mead Village? Those were sort of the gold standards for immersion. Now, Disney's going to move this to a whole new level, and it's just sort of like, okay, Universal, ball's in your court. Let's close the show on the one little interesting thing that broke this week that they finally did confirm. Did you see what's being considered for one of the lands at that park? No, I have not. Classic Universal Monster World. Really? Yeah. From the very same people who brought you <laughs> the Creature from the Black Lagoon, the musical, <laughs> we're now going to get a land that you know celebrates Bella Lugosi as Dracula, Boris Karloff's Frankenstein, Peter Lorre is the Hunchback. You know that that all of those folks we know from the movies. Your children, my child, they're not all that interested in black and white films. No, and, and 
And I don't think garlic is going to bring him in either. On the other hand, Nancy loves garlic. So, all right, we got one. I guess that brings us to the close of a, a, a very weird edition of the, the, the looking at Lucasfilm. But if they're looking for more straightforward, more adult Star Wars information, Dan, where can they go? They can find me every week on Coffee with Kenobi. Wherever you find podcasts, you'll find us once a week. We try to make you laugh, make you think. We're certainly going to talk a lot about Galaxy's Edge. And this is such a huge year for Star Wars and Lucasfilm. It's going to be fantastic. And we'll be with you every step of the way. And then, of course, in April, you're going to find us at Celebration Chicago. And we can't reveal too much about that just yet. But Jim and I will certainly be a presence at Celebration. And you can also find me at stars.com and IGN. Okay. On, on my side of the fence, Disney Dish with Len Testa. We also have Marvel Us Disney. We also have fine-tuning with the amazing drew taylor universal joint and we have i want that the new podcast that we started up about disney merch and i would imagine going ahead we're going to eventually get started talking about some of the merch that, that it's going to be available in batu until then thanks for listening folks and i guess dan and i will see you online uh, at Galaxy's Edge, because <laughs> right. I think probably to get in for opening day, we have to line up today. That's right. So, all right, we'll see you there. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network. <laughs>